0: Amen. All right. So we are um, going through the book of Revelation on uh, Sunday evenings and we're, we're getting through it uh, slowly but uh, surely. And uh, what I'd said to you that we were, we're looking at the, the seven churches here. We're in this portion, Revelation chapter number two on. And we've started off with the things which thou hast seen. And that was Revelation chapter number one. And that was the revealing or the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're now in the portion um, which is the things uh, which are, and this is the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as we looked at these churches, I said to you that they are indeed historical churches. They were uh, real, literal churches that existed at at one time. Um, They also show some spiritual conditions. So each of the churches has a specific spiritual condition that the Lord is addressing. And any one of these spiritual conditions can apply to the church today, Uh, maybe several of them. And then finally I said to you and I'm, all, I'm not dogmatic on this but I do believe it It paints a picture of, of the church age entirely from, from the apostolic church that we looked at in Ephesus last time round. We're now looking at Smyrna which I believe represents the period of the persecuted church. So after the apostles uh, have died away and you uh, enter into this the next stage of church history you'll find it's the persecuted church and we see as we go on this panorama of church history. So we've looked at Ephesus and we said that Ephesus was the drifting church if you remember the Lord had accused them and said to them and rebuked them really of leaving their first love remember they had this great report all these, all these brilliant things they were doing and the Lord said that's good, that's great you're doing all the right things but you've lost your devotion okay? you've, you've left your first love and the Lord gives them the correction he says repent, do the first things get back to basics, love me And then love others. And uh, we looked at that church. Now we're moving to uh, Smyrna. So um, this is our our map of Asia Minor. Uh, You can see Patmos there, can't you? And that's where uh, John receives this revelation of, of Christ and the instruction to the churches. And then I said to you that these churches were on a postal route. Because, you know, when you, when you get back into these, these periods of history, you know, um, it's me roads that connect these cities and their trade routes, etc. But these, these cities, the way um, generally the postal route would have worked, uh, how it would have worked, they would have went round in a circle. So Laodicea, the last church mentioned, would also have been the last church to receive uh, this, this letter written. Ephesus was the first to get it. And we dealt with them last week. Now we're moving on up and we're having a look at Smyrna. Now the name Smyrna uh, means myrrh. It's associated, as you know, with death or embalming. And um, it was one of the primary exports of the city. You can see that it's a a coastal city. So it would have done a a lot of exporting. And and myrrh was one of the things that they uh, exported on a large scale. It's about 40 miles there on that map north of, of Ephesus there and the the Greek word Smyrna actually comes from a Hebrew word meaning bitter so you've got all these connections you've got myrrh you've got uh, the Hebrew root of the word meaning bitter and I think this is a fitting name for the church that represents the persecuted church and we'll see that as we go through because at this period in history so we're dealing about if we're looking at the persecuted church uh, in the order of things after the apostolic church you're dealing from about AD 100 on up to about just before AD 300. And you'll find that that is an intense period of persecution of the early church. Uh, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll see that, you look in church history, that's undeniable from, from uh, any source at all. You'll see that the church was heavily persecuted uh, by Rome because, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, the church was stirring things. The gospel of good news was going out And it was going into a pagan Gentile land and and it was sending tremors out there. And obviously Rome was getting upset. And, you know, Rome I'm sure would have just uh, not batted an eyelid if this gospel that was going out wasn't changing communities and changing people and changing their focus from Caesar on to the Lord. And this gets all the way back to Rome. And we looked at this in the book of Romans on Wednesday night. That, you know, they uh, would have had an impact in the city of Rome in a sea of paganism. Those Roman believers would have had such an impact. And the impact of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that's gone out, has had this effect. And Rome reacts and begins to persecute the church. It takes over from the Jews who were persecuting the sect of the Nazarenes and Rome with all its authority and all its might and all its power puts its foot down upon the believers and begins to squash them and persecute them. And we looked at this this morning, even talking about the enemy's tactics, we see that really that didn't achieve what it was set out to achieve. It didn't do what it was intended to do. And rather than extinguishing the early church, it flourished under persecution. But if we think about Smyrna as that uh, church uh, that represents the persecuted church, we have the connection with, with Myrrh, and we'll go into that a little bit later on. We have the connection in the original he- Hebrew word that the Greek kind of comes out of that means bitterness and we'll see that and if you look there with me at uh, verse uh, number eight and I said to you remember that, um, that every time Christ addresses the church he, he goes back to some characteristic from the revelation of the unveiling that was given in Revelation chapter number one and it's pertinent for the people that he's writing to and what they're going through. Because we'll see as we see that uh, a little bit later on, we're going to see that the Lord talks about Smyrna as a local assembly that's going to face persecution. But also, with the wider context of the persecuted church, the Lord introduces Himself and He says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, why do you think that the Lord would use that part of His revelation or His unveiling? to that specific church why would he say that do you think because they were being killed but more so why, why, why yes and so expand that expand that you're on the right path There's everlasting life to come. right right absolutely if you, you're being persecuted you're being put to death where's your hope it's in the resurrection right it's in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ death has no sting the grave has no victory right So the Lord introduces himself and he says, I am the first and the last, you know, the beginning and the end. I am all-powerful, omnipotent. I am that which was dead and is alive. I am the resurrected one. I am the risen Lord. Death has no power over you. And that's what that church needed to hear. That's what it needed to hear. So the Lord, it's not a coincidence why he uses that description... For these people. And later on when we look at the other churches. I'm going to show you again. How he continues to do that. And just gives the right word. For the right season. For what these people are going through. And you know that's a great thing to do isn't it. I think as believers. You know whatever season or struggle we're going through. Whatever difficulty we're going through. We can go and we can look at the Lord Jesus Christ. As the risen one. The resurrected one. The all powerful one. The omnipotent one. The one that's coming again. And we can have hope. We can have hope. Because of who he is not because of who we are so this title for christ reminds the christians at smyrna that in their times of persecution in their times of possible martyrdom that's what the, the lord goes on to say that if they're faithful to death he'll give them a crown of life that, that christ had gone before them he had suffered and he had died on calvary's cross so that they didn't have anything to fear that this world was not their home, that they were just passing through pilgrims, heading for the eternal state. And actually, it it kind of parallels the, the situation of Smyrna because Smyrna was destroyed as a city. And uh, didn't appear again as a city for 300 years. So again, there's there's tie-ins in the whole resurrection story, and again with this city. And as I've said, the name Smyrna means myrrh, and we know, don't we, that the myrrh is associated with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at it just uh, for uh, uh, clarity's sake. Let's turn to Matthew chapter two and verse eleven. Matthew two eleven. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down, worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Onwards to Mark chapter fifteen, verse twenty three. We're on Calvary's cross now. Mark 15, verse 23, and says, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Then, finally, John, chapter 19, verse 39 to 40, And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. They took the body of Jesus, wound it with linen clothes, with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So, Um, Myrrh is associated with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and myrrh is an association of bitterness and and suffering behind it. And that's what the word brings out itself. And, you know, if you think about this, the the believers at Smyrna, um, you know, thinking about the Lord and his first coming and his association as being the suffering servant and what he went through then it gives them the strength to go through what they're going through. And any trouble or trial, especially of a persecution nature that comes upon us, we have to go back to Calvary and look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see how he suffered and his humanity. How he was beaten, whipped, humiliated, reeled upon, cursed spat upon, slapped. He suffered. And he suffered for us. So when we think about his first comment and and suffering, if we face any suffering, then, you know... uh, are we not uh, in, in the right place to be able to say that you know, whatever persecution comes our way, it's nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus had to face as the Son of God who suffered silently at the hands of his creation so that we might be set free. It's nothing really. The Lord had been through Suffering. He'd been through bitterness. He'd been through the difficult times. And because of that, he could be a help for those that were going through that. Hebrews 2, verse 18 says, For he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to secure or aid them that are tempted. We know that we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is familiar with what we went through. That he knows what it's like to suffer and be persecuted that he's not a distant uh, from this. You know, one of the accusations about our our, uh, Chancellor, love him or loathe him, at the minute who is uh, making all these financial decisions. And people are saying he doesn't know what it's like because he's a billionaire, millionaire, and he comes from a millionaire family and his wife's a millionaire. And, you know, he doesn't know what it's like to have a heating bill that's being doubled. And that's the accusation is you don't know. But that's never an accusation that could be made at the Lord. You don't know what it's like to be me. Because the Lord can say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I put on flesh. I walked amongst you. I held back. I veiled my deity. So that I could walk amongst you. You know... We have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we thank the Lord Jesus that he did come as a suffering servant. That in his first coming, it was associated with suffering, because that suffering was for our salvation. But in his second coming, in his second coming, there will be no suffering. There will be no suffering. When Jesus comes again, there will be no suffering. When he came the first time, he was presented with gold, representing his deity. He was uh, given frankincense, representing his holiness. And of course, myrrh representing his suffering. But when he comes again, I want you to notice what's missing in the things that he's presented with. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 60. Isaiah 60, these verses deal with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 60, verse 6, notice what's missing. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. That, that's my idea of a nightmare, by the way. I'll tell, I will tell you at some point a story about me and a camel, and it's not good. Anyway, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and myrrh. No myrrh. And they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Gold for the deity. Frankincense for his holiness. No myrrh. Because there's no suffering when the Lord comes again. He doesn't come as a suffering servant. He comes as the sovereign saviour. Not to suffer at the hands of man. But to put everything into his dominion. And we thank the Lord Jesus for that. So that's all introduction. Let's get into the body. And uh, we have a look at this church. So we want to have a look at the report of the church how do they do? How does this suffering church, how does this persecuted church do? Well, the clue was in the title. We've called them a delightful church. We have went for a drifting church to a delightful church. Why are they a delightful church? Well, we're going to see. So firstly, let's look at the commendation. Verse 9, Lord says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. So the Lord says to them, I know thy works. And we looked a bit at that with Ephesus. I know thy trials and thy troubles and thy poverty. But then the Lord says, but they are rich. And I love this. (laughs) I love this. This made me chuckle. Uh, because (laughs) Because... you know, when we deal with this, we have to understand that this world wants to tie us down. My goodness me, it wants to tie us down and pull us down in the materialism. It does. And it does it very successfully. And, and you know, it, we're programmed from an early age to, to put stock in success and financial stability and why that's recommended and indeed it's biblical. You know, it, it can bring us and pull us down. And the Lord says you're poor, but you're rich. And when we get to the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3, uh, verse 17, he says to them, you say you're rich, but you're poor. But to this suffering church, the persecuted church, the church that didn't have any government aid, state aid, the church that had to just uh, fight for everything that they could uh, get, the Lord says, you may be materialistically poor, but you are, and I'm paraphrasing here, you're spiritually rich. And I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. I laugh because just today we were having this conversation <laughs> in the house, and uh, I don't know why the topic came up. It came up about wills, and um, Caden was trying to work out what he would—do we have a will, and how much would he get? <laughs> okay. And uh, we we said, well, at the minute, nothing. So. <laughs> And, and Claire, Claire says, well, you know, we don't have a house, so we can't leave you that. Um, we could leave you some of the debts if you want. But other than that, we don't, we don't have anything. And uh, and I was joking and I said, but, and this is usually my go-to, but it's true. This is usually what I say, and it, it is true. That he has been given a spiritual heritage that I didn't have. That I didn't have. He's grown up to know the Lord Jesus Christ from a young age and be around the people of God. And that is a spiritual treasure. And I said to him, you know, you've got that. And it was tongue in cheek, but there's truth in that. He's spiritual riches. What good is us leaving him a house worth thousands and thousands of pounds if we leave him facing a lost eternity when he has to stand before the Lord and the wood stubble and hay is burnt away and you're left with nothing. No, spiritual riches are, are much more above and beyond what we can ever imagine. And we have to get that into our minds at times when we walk this earth that wants to pull us down into materialistic thinking. And we have to remember that we have a mansion in heaven, that we are serving the Lord here, that our reward's not here, it's up there. And that's a reward that will not rust, that will not perish, that will not fade away. The Lord says to this church, I know you're poor materialistically, but my you're rich. You're rich. And the Christian that lays up treasures in heaven is rich indeed. You know there'll be some rich earthly Christians that end up in heaven per by heaven standards. Because they'll have put all their life into this world, and then they'll stand in the world to come, and they'll be heartbroken. Heartbroken that they haven't served the Lord Jesus Christ. The paradox of the Christian world is not having earthly riches, but we have everything. We have everything. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That's the paradox. We have nothing in this world, really, but we've everything. We've everything. The word for rich that's used in Revelation 2, verse 9, and it says, but there are rich, is the, the Greek word plousios. It comes from the English word plurocrat. Does anybody know what plurocrat is? Any boffins here? No? Do you know what aristocrat is? You've heard that term, yeah? Okay. So I, I, and Honestly, I'm not pretending to be intelligent here because I had the Google list. But... <laughs> aristocrat is, you know, your your power is inherited. It's hereditary. You're born into it. Uh, Plutocrats are those that their power is in their wealth. And that's what the term is used. And our power is in our wealth. Not material wealth. Spiritual wealth. And we are a powerful people. We are a powerful people. We may have little uh, earthly piggy banks, but our heavenly one is absolutely overflowing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, the Lord says, you know, you're you're poor, but actually you're rich. You know, that's that's the thing. And here's the thing. You know, when you're poor, when you are flat broke, when you are in that place where literally you're just relying on the Lord for your daily bread, let me tell you this. You're not tied down by the materialistic things of the world. You're not. Your only focus is getting food for the day. You're not thinking about the fancy car. You're thinking about something to eat. And it strips it all back. In this early church, we'll see that actually in the persecution, with all those distractions stripped back, Claire said to me um, this morning as I was asking her about the sermon just to see if she was listening or, or not, asking about the points, and she said, well, why didn't you use the, the point distraction uh, as one of the enemy's tactics? Because he does use distraction. I said, that's a good point, but it wasn't in the text that we were talking about. So that's why I didn't use it, but it's a good point. The things of this world are a distraction, and to be rich in this world can be a distraction. Now don't get me wrong; it can be used for great good in the, in the church and through the local body. There's no doubt about that. But the things of this world can be a distraction, and when these are stripped away, when we get back to basics, it really refocuses us upon the things that are indeed important and are not trivial. So the Lord says, "You're you're you're poor, but yet you're rich." Then he goes on to say, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. What does that mean? Well, the New Testament definition of a Jew, you'll find that in Romans chapter 2, We'll deal with that in Romans study as we get to it. In verse 29 it says, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So really it's dealing with it at heart level. You know, it's not what you do, it's the attitude of why you do what you do is the important thing. And he says, uh, the Lord says, He knows the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but inwardly are not. And actually they're of the synagogue of Satan. What does this mean? Satan is a counterfeiter. He wants to be like God. We talked about this this morning and I didn't tie these two messages in just the way it fell today as we deal with the tactics of our enemy. We have to understand that our enemy is is one who wants to be like God. You know, the, the devil wants to control this world. He has a system in this world. He is a counterfeiter. He has his synagogues. He has his people in his places all over this world. And we often think that the the devil's not working to any plan. He's just going about doing evil wherever he can. And then anything evil that happens is because of him. That's that's not, not not it at all. And there are those out there that are evil and wicked that the devil has no control over. It's the sin nature of man. But the devil, he wants to be worshipped. He wants to have an ordered system underneath him. Read Isaiah. He says, I will be like the Most High. He wants that place of reverence and worship, and he is building his kingdom. And he has his workers in his places and the Lord is calling them out here right at the, at the early church. He says, I know those that say outwardly that they are Jews, but inwardly their hearts tell a different story. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They're of their father, the devil. They're workers of iniquity. They're imposters. They're false. And he says, I know that you... Have fought the good fight and know that you have stood the ground, that you haven't let those come in that are legalistic in their nature and their outgoing, and, and they have fought against the false doctrine that's coming in. And the false doctrine that comes into the early church is the attack upon the deity of Christ and a mixing of law and grace. And you'll see that in the writings of, of uh, Paul. You'll see that in the history of the early church. And you will see that all of the false movements within Christendom, if you like, all of the, the false uh, splinter groups, the, the uh, isms and the schisms that come out of Christianity, usually come from these two false teachings. Number one, on the deity of Christ, or this mixing of law and, and grace. So practically every false religious system and cult coming out of Christianity can be traced back to one of these two errors. And the early church largely withstood these two false teachings. And the Lord commends them. He says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not of but the synagogue of Satan. So he commands them for the work that they are doing, defending the doctrines of truth. So as a church, they're doing what they should do. That's the commendation. What about the condemnation? Remember, Ephesus had their commendation and then they had the condemnation. The Lord says, I have something against you. Well... Nothing said this morning. Nothing said this morning. They're a delightful church. No condemnation. Nothing to say against this church. And if there was something to say, the Lord would have said it. He would have said it. Because we tell from the very outset, as the Lord reigns, he reigns with absolute honesty because he's God. But also, you know, Ephesus, he writes all these great things and then he their bubble, And he could have just said, oh, you're doing well. Pep talk. But the Lord speaks truth because he is truth. So there's no condemnation, which means there's no correction. We looked at it last week. There was a correction for the church at Ephesus. Repent, do the first works. No correction for this church at Smyrna. So, you know, the persecuted church, I want you to note this had corrected the drift that began in the apostolic church. Because there's no mention of leaving your first love. So this church had come along and they had corrected that error. What had helped them, do you think, to correct that error of leaving their first love? I want to put it to you. It was the persecution that came that drove them to the very feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you've nowhere else to go but the Lord, you will run to him and you will cling to him and you will give your all to him. And that's what happens when persecution comes. I say this this morning and I say it tonight and I still mean it. There's a separation of the wheat and the chaff. Those are on the sidelines, those that maybe don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour when tough times come, when you have to put your life on the line to worship the Lord, you will see the true church and then the true church will get back to their first love because everything else is taken away and the church at Smyrna, they had corrected it, they had dealt with it and they had got back to their first love through the persecution that they faced so there's no condemnation there's no correction um, but there is a challenge verse 10 fear none of those things which they shall suffer behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison you may be tried you, you shall have tribulation ten days be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life so there's the challenge from the Lord not that persecution is not going to come don't, not that run and hide from it it's simply this be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life it says in verse 10 fear none of those things which thou shall suffer so you know he's saying that these things are coming you're facing these things you're going through these things don't fear them be faithful unto death and we look at that and we think about that and we think that's so far distant in the past. You know, I'm glad that we don't live in a society where, where, where you know, any of these verses are really applicable to us. But let me tell you, there's going to be a point and there's going to be a time where this is going to be the church. At some point before the return of the Lord, I, I believe in this country, we're going to get to a point where this might happen. That we might have to be faithful unto death. That's a challenge, right? That's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to be faithful unto life. <laughs> but never faithful unto death. But that may come. It may come. The Lord says to them, Some of you are going to be cast into present." That's verse 10. You may be trained. You shall have tribulation. Ten days be the faithful unto death. Now, ten days of tribulation would have been absolutely a real event that was going to happen to that local body historically over ten days. I think there's also a prophetic element to it. So, the double meaning in Scripture, there can be a literal, real time uh, application, interpretation to what's been said, ten days of tribulation, but there can also be a prophetic element to it. And when you look at the persecuted church and the period of the persecuted church, you'll find that there's 10 uh, Roman rulers in that period of persecution. So you start with uh, Nero, uh, AD 54. You move on to Domitian, and then you go to Trajan, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus, Severus, Maximus, and then Decius, and then Valerian, and then Elarian, and then the final one, Maybe one of the most wicked ones, Diocletian, when you have a look at him in history, he was absolutely awful to the early church. And we have this period of church history, well, under these Roman rulers, where it's just persecution, 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 persecution. And I said this morning that that was a tactic of the enemy, but it wasn't reaping the rewards that the enemy wanted. And actually, as the pressure came, the church just flourished because it was a pure church. And a pure church is a powerful church. There's no doubt about that. And as the persecution come, came, it didn't do what it was meant to do. And then, when we get after Diocletian's rule, along comes Constantine and things change. The tactic becomes in full like we spoke about this morning. And we have really the beginnings of Roman Catholicism and all that that means. But Smyrna represents the persecuted church. We'll we'll deal with Roman Catholicism in the dark ages as we go on in this. And the Lord says, you're going to suffer. The devil's going to cast some of you into prison, but be faithful and I will give you a crown of life. And there are five crowns promised to believers in Scripture. We don't need to look at them particularly this evening, but there's an incorruptible crown, there's a crown of rejoicing, there's a crown of righteousness, crown of glory, and the crown of life. These are not crowns to be worn on our heads. We'll see in Revelation chapter number 4 when we get there. They with the 24 elders that they cast their crowns before the throne. These are crowns that we earn in this life for service to the Lord that we give back to him because he alone is worthy. And what a moment that will be. So there's the challenge. Be faithful unto death. And the Lord then finishes with some comfort and says this. Verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So here comes the comfort. He that overcometh shall not be hurt at the second death. Who are the overcomers? Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 because we want to be clear on this. We want to be absolutely clear on this because we're not dealing with the doctrine of uh, works-based salvation. that If you persevere to the end, you'll be saved. We're dealing with overcomers. Who are the overcomers? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So if you're here this evening and you believe the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, you've been born again by saving faith, you are a believer. That means you are an overcomer. Not based on what you've done, but based on what he has done. And the Lord says, He that overcometh, he who is a believer in me, shall not be hurt of the second death. What is the second death? Revelation 21 verse 8, the great white throne judgment Where the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake with burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to the persecuted church, he begins with the entry saying, I am the first, I am the last, I was born, I was dead and rose again trust in me and my resurrection power and he ends that persecution church and he says he that overcometh he who is a believer in me shall not face the second death and for the persecuted church that's what you wanted to hear that the Lord had you and wouldn't let you go and because of that they could be faithful in death and to death for the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew that wasn't the end and their eternal hope was in him not in some system of works, not in some system of theology, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last. So, as we think about Smyrna, as we wrap up this evening, what are we to learn? Well, I've said that, you know, we look at the spiritual conditions of these churches and we can't apply to church today and we want to be like Smyrna, you know? We, we, Ephesus was good, but Smyrna was better. Because they didn't receive any condemnation from the Lord. And we want to be like Smyrna. What does that mean? We want to be faithful. And we want to be fearless. In the word of God. For his testimony. And if we're called to be martyrs. Well, we're all called to be martyrs. Because it's the word witness. But if we're called to you know, step up and, and put our faith on the line. If we're called at some point... You know, as a pastor, and we we have talked about this as a family, that, you know, we preach a message that is biblical. I believe absolutely in the foundation of the Word of God, and there are things that I will not move on. And, you know, we've talked about this, our views of marriage, etc. Um, and, there, you know, we're in a society where this is a difficult Topic. We're in a society where, you know, preaching like this, unadulterated, with just, uh, you know, as the Lord would lead, is going to get me in bother. No, not me going out into the streets and. And harassing people or anything like that, but just in our own churches, there are going to be times coming that people want to come in and censor what I uh, am given by the Lord to say. That's going to happen. It's happened in in this country, and it will happen more and more so because our message, the gospel, is an offense to the world. It is. But we want to be a church like Smyrna, we want to be Christians like those believers that were willing to be faithful unto death. Well, to be fearful to go to prison, if that's what it takes. To be fearless and to be faithful and to take courage that the Lord conquered death and is alive. And that our death in this life is, is, is just service to the Lord and all glory to him. So as we think about Smyrna, we should take courage to face whatever comes. And I'm not being a prophet of doom and I pray that persecution doesn't come. But it may. We want to look to Smyrna at the Church and see how they handle it. Now, I want to close and I want to finish and I want to take us to um, an account of one of the pastors of the Church of Smyrna, a man called Polycarp. If you know anything about Polycarp, You'll, you'll, uh, fascinating character. But he, he, he ministered at Smyrna for many years, and um, this is this is the, the account. Polycarp was the disciple of John, and he was one of the last connections in the persecuted church between the apostolic uh, teachers and and the persecuted church. And he was a pastor, as I've said, of Smyrna. And I want to read an account. This is taken from uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp, and he's one of the first uh, early church martyrs. And um, I'm going to read through this. And, and, you know, again, we have to connect what we're reading here back to a local historical group of believers that would have received this letter and heard it for the first time and heard the words from their saviour that they were doing a good work, that he had nothing bad to say about them, but they were going to, uh, many of them, die for their faith. And he said, be faithful unto death. And now we're gonna read the account of, of one of these people that would have heard that letter, the angel of, of the church at, at Smyrna, the pastor, who was willing to put it all on the line for the Lord and be faithful unto death. So there's a little bit to read here, but bear with me. So this is this is from taken from the book, extracted from, from the account. It says now when he had finished at last his prayer, this is Polycarp, after remembering all that had ever even come his way both small and great high and low and the whole Catholic or universal church throughout the world the hour came for departure so they, they come to grab him and he said I'll go I'll go willingly but just give me an hour to pray before I go and they did and that hour turned into two hours and that three hours and he prayed so on he went he went on, on this, this uh, donkey they led him to this city on the great Sabbath day And the police captain Herod and his father Nikitas met him and removed him into their carriage and sat by his side trying to persuade him and saying, But what harm is it to say, Lord Caesar, and to offer sacrifice and so forth and to be saved? So what they're doing at this point is they're trying to get the believers, the followers of the way, to recant their faith, to recant the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I I do not know him. It's Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. But he at first did not an answer, and when they continued, he said, I am not going to do what you counsel me. And they gave him gave up the attempt to persuade him and began to f- speak fiercely to him, and turned him out in such a hurry that, getting him down from the carriage, he scraped his sh- shin. I think he's about 80 odd years of age at this point. And without turning around as though he had suffered nothing, he walked on promptly and quickly and was taken to the arena. Again, this is the blood sport that was going on as as the Christians were persecuted for sport. While the uproar in the arena was so great that no one could even be heard. Now when Polycarp entered into the arena, there came a voice from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but our friends who were there heard the voice. And next he was brought forward and there was a great uproar of those that heard Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before the proconsul, asked him if he were Polycarp. And when he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny, saying, respect your age and so forth. As they're accustomed to sw- say, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say, away with the atheists. The, the, the Romans viewed the Christians as atheists. That's what they viewed them. That's what they called them. Because obviously they didn't follow their gods. Um, so that's what they wanted to say. But Polycarp with his stern countenance looked in all the crowd of lawless heathen in the arena and waving his hand at them, he groaned and looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. But when the pro-council pressed him and said, take the oath and I let you go, revile Christ. Polycarp said, for 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But when he persisted again and said, swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered him, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrine of Christianity, fix a day and listen. (laughs) This man's facing death. Says you want to know about Christianity? <laughs> Fix the day and listen. The proconsul said, "Persuade the people." And Polycarp said, "You I should have held worthy of discussion, for if we have been taught to render honor as it is meet, if it is hurt, if it is, if it hurt us not to princes and authorities appointed by God. But as for those, I do not count them worthy, what a defense should be made to them." And the proconsul said, "I have wild beasts." I will deliver you to them unless you repent. And he said, this is Polycarp, call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us, but it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And he said again to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beasts unless you repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten with the fire that burns for a time. It is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked and the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And with these and many other words, he was filled with courage and joy. And his face was full of grace, so that it not only did fall with with trouble at the things said to him, but that the proconsul on the other hand was astounded and sent his herald into the midst of the arena to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. When this had been said by the herald, all the multitudes of heathen and Jews living in Smyrna cried out with uncontrollable wrath and a loud shout, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many neither to offer sacrifice nor to worship. That was Polycarp, pastor of the church at Smyrna, I want to put it to you that maybe he was the pastor at the time when this letter that we've just read all these years later was read out for the first time and he was sat there and he heard this message from the Lord which said you are going to have to die for me but fear not I've conquered death and he that believeth in me has overcome And what a message that was for the church at Smyrna. What a message that was for Polycarp as he went and he faced that and he stood it down. And you can read more of the account of Polycarp and how he died in in such a graceful way. And the challenge for us today is that if this comes, what are we to do? How are we to behave? I suggest that we read what the Lord said to the church that faced persecution all those years ago. And we apply it to ourselves today to know that there's nothing in this life, nothing in this life that has anything over us when we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.